Welcome to the podcast of Saltbox Church, where we are rethinking church and reworking life around the person and presence of King Jesus. Good morning. Welcome. Um, You are scrunched up on the bleachers. We are glad you're here. Denise, you are sitting on the floor. Come on. Well done. If anyone wants to sit next to Denise, you can. There's some more chairs coming in, too. So uh, welcome. This is fun. This is church. Um, How many of you know church is not about a building? Come on. It is not. God uh, stopped dwelling in buildings um, when Jesus came. And now where does he dwell? In us. So where us are or is, where we are, where, who is there also? Jesus. Yeah. So Jesus is here. He is in our midst. So uh, here we are, and uh, hopefully we'll be back in the auditorium next week. But this is kind of fun. I like this. I can actually see people. I was like, man, this is great. This is, this is encouraging. Okay, here we are. I am in um, Acts 11. Um, we are going to break into Acts 11. We were in Acts 10 for quite a while. If you've got a paper Bible, open it up. If you're scrolling, feel free to scroll. <clears throat> we're talking this morning about Peter, uh, and Peter is making sort of this cataclysmic shift in the New Testament church, and I want to try to get into Peter's heart and mind a little bit, and I think there's two things in um, Peter that make him so powerfully God's man, and the reason I want to um, walk down this sort of line or, or, or take a look at this is I think we can all make some pretty clear inroads and applications into our own hearts and life. If this is what um, God uh, called Peter to, if this is what he did, and therefore he was God's man, then today, if we do those uh, similar heart posture things, then I think we become God's man or God's woman. Amen? Okay, so that's what we're taking a look at. So we're going to really see what's going on inside Peter's heart. Um, Number one, we're going to take a quick look at uh, four, what I would call divine hammer blows, if you will, like a hammer that is um, breaking something or molding or shaping something. Uh, And then we're going to talk about um, a couple of lessons uh, to learn um, in this uh, interesting passage. So I'm going to start in Acts 11, but before I do, I'm going to cross-reference Mark 14, verse 27 to 31, because I want you to see a couple things about Peter that we're going to talk about in Acts 11. So I'm going to start reading in Mark 14, just a couple verses. Feel free to scroll there or flip there um, or just listen as we set the table for Acts 11. Okay, Mark 14, I'm actually going to start in verse 26, um, but they are, the the disciples and Jesus are in the upper room, Um, Acts 14, or excuse me, Mark 14, verse 26, here's what it says, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, so they've just celebrated the Last Supper, they've just broken bread, Jesus has just instituted communion, Um, now interesting, they sung a hymn, do you think they had a guitar? Full acapella, sung a hymn, come on. That means even I could break out in a song right now. Okay, they sung a hymn, then they went out to the Mount of Olives. They probably uh, hiked down into this olive grove. I wish I could take you there today, but uh, we'll just have to imagine it. Verse 27. Uh, So after they get into this olive grove um, on, on the Mount of Olives called Gethsemane, verse 27, Jesus says, you will all fall away. That's encouraging, isn't it? How about if I look at you today and say, you're all gonna fall away. Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd. Now, who's the shepherd? Jesus, that's right. And who's the I? Probably the enemy. Yeah, I will strike the shepherd, Jesus. And the sheep, who are the sheep? All of us. In this case, who are the sheep? The 12 disciples, yep, will be scattered. Verse 28, but after I have risen, who's risen? 
King Jesus, that's right, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And now Peter declares in verse 29, even if all fall away, I will not. A little bit of arrogance, a little bit of presumption, a little bit of pride. Michael, how do you know that? Because I've been Peter. That's the short answer. Verse 30, truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, even tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. Verse 31, but Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. All right, so here's what I want you to see before we open up Acts 11. Peter... um, is saying, even if everybody else falls away, what about him? Not me. Not me. Even if everybody else fails, even if everybody else denies you, not me. I'm going to make it. I'm going to go the distance. And does he? He denies him how many times? This is really fun because I can like look in your eyes and like interact with you. This is crazy. When I'm up on that other stage, it's like train lights at me, and I have no idea what's going on out there. This, I'm going to get distracted and be like, wow, good morning, welcome, hi. <laughs> okay, um, so back to uh, Acts 11. So we have now this arrogant, um, maybe uh, angry um, apostle or, or um, disciple Peter. He's a young man. I'd probably call him loudmouth, overconfident, overconfident. He's probably a ruffian up on the Sea of Galilee. And all of the sudden, um, he, you, you have, you're beginning to experience in this transformation of Peter, this deep humility. So I can imagine um, as, as Peter uh, is now the first pastor of the first church in Jerusalem, I can imagine there could be some pride and some of that same presumption and overconfidence and arrogance that could easily sneak in to Peter's heart. So let's just start reading uh, here in chapter um, 11. So if you weren't here the last couple of weeks, um, he, uh, God spoke to Peter, and he's going to tell us what he spoke here in just a minute, but God spoke to Peter to go um, and lead this guy, Cornelius, who was a non-believing Gentile, and even worse than a non-believing Gentile, he was a Roman soldier, and even worse than a Roman soldier, he was a commander of, a, of a, about 600 Roman troops. So he was hated because he was a Gentile. He was hated more because he was a Roman. He was hated even more because he was a Roman soldier and leader of a little army. So there's much hatred for this guy, Cornelius. So chapter 11 actually picks up when Peter has gone out to um, uh, share with Cornelius, and then he comes back to his church in Jerusalem. So now we're back in Jerusalem. So let's see what it says. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So what's the church doing? Chattering. Did you hear? Oh, my gosh. Verse 2. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of the uncircumcised, and he ate, uh, and you ate with them. Verse 4. Starting at the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. Okay, so let's pause here just for a minute. Um, I, I, I was trying to think, how could I even put this in modern context? This is like, let's say I get invited to preach in Raleigh, and I go up to Raleigh, and I preach, and it's the really this powerful thing, and the Holy Spirit shows up, and something wild happens, and you guys, you hear about it, right? And you're like, well, why does that happen up there, not here? 
What's wrong with him? What did he do? And then Michael comes back. So this is, let's just pretend I've just been up to Raleigh and I've preached this message and I come back in here and one of you stands up right at this moment. Molly over here stands up and goes, Michael, I heard that you were out doing X, Y, and Z. And then somebody else stands up and then there's a whole frou-frou on Sunday morning. That's what's happening right here. Okay. There's this big old, all because of Molly stood up and had, all because Molly stood up and had this, had this, Michael, what were you doing? So, but that's what's happening here. So Peter has come back in. Now, whose church is it? It's Jesus' church. But whose pastor? Peter. So I can only imagine that if I walked in here this morning and I began to preach and Molly stood up and there was a big old commotion and all of you guys were upset because the air conditioner was out and we moved and whatever, that, that I might feel, or now let's go back to Peter, could Peter feel defensive? Yeah, could he feel anxious? Yeah, in fact, I, you know, he could really be like, oh my goodness, I tried to follow God and now here everybody is attacking me. Okay, so... Peter goes up to Jerusalem. The, uh, the circumcised believers criticized him, saying, you went to the house of the uncircumcised and you ate with them. Now, what I hear in, now this is Dr. Luke's writing, and he's writing it after it happened, but I don't read any defensiveness. I don't read any anxiety. I don't read any fear here in the apostle Peter. And I think this is very different than the sort of arrogant, presumptuous apostle Peter that we hear about and read about in the gospels. So all of a sudden, there has been some heart transformation. Dwayne was actually saying it up here during worship, but there's been some heart transformation in and through the apostle Peter at this point in time uh, that is a allowing him even to stand there as the pastor of the church when the whole church appears to be attacking him. Because remember, at this point, by and large, who is the church made up of? Circumcised Jews, if you're male. And uncircum if you're a female, there's no circumcision. But it still would have been made up of circumcised males and females, Jews. Um, so the entire church is now like in a tirade against Peter, and they're probably about to leave. Now, what's fascinating to me here in this moment, and, and I, I, should, I should probably like, um, I don't know, couch this, but there, there's two character traits that I see emerge in this passage about Peter. And number one, um, I see his surrender to God's sovereignty. Is it his church? No. No. In fact, I, I, for me, it's a warning sign when I hear a pastor roll in and go too much, my church. No, 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 no. Whose church is it? I assure you, Michael is 42 years old. In a few short years, God willing, I'll live 30 or 40 or more years. But in a few short years, I'm going to be gone, and I am just passing through. I am just a, a mist and a vapor, and I will be gone, and somebody else will pastor this church or another church. So it, it, is, it is God's church. It is the universal church. And the first thing I see Peter um, fully doing is surrendering first to God's sovereignty. In other words, God has orchestrated some events. There is this, um, there is this opening of the doors to not just the Jews, but now to the entire Gentiles. It's actually going to open up the doors so that the apostle Paul can carry the gospel down the Roman salt roads and all of Europe can really begin to be evangelized. And then secondly, I see Peter surrendering to God's right to ownership. We're going to open that in just a minute. 
So the first thing I see is Peter um, surrendering to God's sovereignty. Second thing is him, he's, he's uh, surrendering to God's right to ownership. In other words, this is God's church. And what I'm all of a sudden seeing here, instead of a guy who is proud and instead of a, a, a guy who is going to fight and, and sort of, he just, I didn't read it to you, but there's another passage where he just got in a kerfuffle, it would have been a few years earlier, with the other disciples about who was the greatest. So this is massive heart transformation in Peter because Peter comes back and he's just going to explain the situation in verse 4. So somebody defined character um, as the will to do what's right as defined by God regardless of personal cost. Let me say that again. Someone, smarter than me I think, defined character as the will to do what's right as defined by God regardless of personal cost. So, is Peter at this moment at risk of losing his church? Could everybody leave? Yeah. What if he lost his paycheck or his house or his family? I mean, you know, what, I, he couldn't afford to live. I mean, he, you, you so easily get, and so many even modern pastors in the American sort of system and Western world get trapped into this thing where instead of being able to follow God and lead courageously, we begin to serve and try to please the people we're with. I mean, he could have immediately said, you're right, I am so sorry. I shouldn't have done this. I've made a mistake. Please forgive me. But what's he do? Well, he starts at the beginning, verse 4. Let me tell you the whole story. I think where Peter would have previously said, my will, my way, it's now become God's will and God's way. It's reminiscent of what you see with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Your kingdom come, your will be done. So Peter is laying down his, um, he's surrendering to God's sovereignty and he's even surrendering to God's right uh, to ownership. And let me open this just a little bit more before we keep reading. Let me also make the shift into your life. Um, what you begin to see emerge here is that Peter is not the owner of the church. Peter is not even the full leader of the church. He is the pastor of the church, but he sees himself not an, as an owner, but as more of a steward passing through. Okay? So now let me flip this and make some application into your life before we keep reading. Um, if it's, uh, is it my house? Is it my spouse? Are they my kids? Is it my job and my car? Now, technically, has God entrusted your car to you? Yeah. So, insofar as he has given you ownership. Okay. But there is a shift if you can begin to see yourself as a steward of what God has given you instead of as the one who is the owner over it and in control of it. All of a sudden, you can be like Peter and stop being defensive and anxiety-filled about what's going to become because it's not yours anyway. You hear me? So, like, here, dig, dig just a little deeper here. Um, if they're, uh, okay, my kids. Are they my kids? I would say, if we were going to be theologically accurate, they're the kids that God has entrusted Michael and Abby with raising and loving and leading towards him. So when something happens to one of our kids, do I blame myself? You see how all of a sudden it becomes, I am becoming a companion and a participant with the Lord Jesus and the infilling power of the Holy Spirit in bringing the kingdom of God into the lives of my kids, and yet I can just walk with them in and through the difficult thing. Does that make sense? I don't have to own it. I don't have to take responsibility for it. This is funny, and I'm going to tell you, and anyway, I wasn't going to say it, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Uh, yesterday, um, my dad and I, he's sitting right here, we went uh, offshore fishing a couple of miles. 
and we took Ezra, our three-year-old, with us. And yesterday was hot, and the weather was really nice. We went off the uh, out, uh, Southport Inlet out down by Bald Head, and we were just a couple miles offshore, and uh, the boat was doing this. Can you imagine? And we're fishing, and little Ezra's eating his snack. Daddy, can I have more snack? Yeah, sure, Ezra. Can I have more? Yeah, absolutely. Can I have a bag of chips? Oh, sure. Can I have a juice? Yeah, sure. Can I have that candy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I brought us. Yeah, have at it, man, whatever. And all of a sudden, I look over at little Ezra, and he's going... And the next thing I know, all over. And it was one of those moments where at first I was like, this is terrible. I feel guilty. And then I had this moment where it's like, instead of Michael, should I have had him out there? I don't know. It was great to be with him. Instead of me beating myself up or being down on myself or me trying to fix or control the situation, I was just with him in it. Just loved on him. It was all over him. It was all over me. We were a big mess. I'm dunking him over the side of the boat, and there's a bucket, and I'm dumping these buckets on him, and I'm dumping these buckets on me, and we're getting all cleaned up. And then we decided to head in so he didn't stay sick, and I said, hey, Dad, would you drive the boat? And Ezra just said, Dad, um, would you just snuggle with me? And so I just held him. <laughs> I held him sitting on the front of the boat as Dad drove, and we were heading in. And I'm just, um, I'm just snuggling with Ezra. I'm not fixing it. I'm not changing it. I'm, not, I'm, I'm just loving on him. And he's like sitting there whispering to me, and we're talking back and forth. And he's still a little pale and a little green. And uh, we, we just had this, this beautiful moment. But there is a shift in my own thinking that if you are, if you are the full owner, if they're fully your kids, then you've got to fix it. You've got to change it. You've got to make it. It is all on your shoulders. It is up to you. And there's this level of like anxiety and defensiveness that can come with that where it's like, oh my goodness. But all of a sudden, if God has allowed something, whether it's something as silly as being seasick or something more serious like type 1 diabetes or a learning disability or autism or you, you fill in the blank, you can instead of blaming yourself or even getting angry, you can begin to humble yourself before God, just like the apostle Peter, grasping a surrender to his sovereignty grasping a um, surrender to God's right to ownership, and then you can become a companion and participant with the Holy Spirit, with the Lord Jesus, in the life of that little person or that friend or that family member, and you can journey with them. You see the flip? Like it's so, it, it's like my, some of you sit there and go, Michael, this is semantics. No, it's not. No, it's not, because if you can get deep in your soul, like I think Peter got in his soul in this moment, this is not my church. If everyone leaves today, it is okay because I am going to follow who? Jesus. I mean, the power in that is so amazing. All of a the sudden, there is this freedom that your life isn't up to you. I think a lot of the anxiety and the defensiveness that Americans even struggle with is because we have this huge, like, over-responsibility that we're in control of everything and we, or everything is up to us. No, it's not. Can I fix the air conditioner in the auditorium? No. Does it matter that we're in the gym today? No. Jesus is still lifted up. He is still God. He can speak in the auditorium. It doesn't matter. There is a, a freedom when you begin to grasp that this is God's thing and you are on God's ride. But it does require, if you become more of a steward in life and a steward of everything God has entrusted to you, there is a level at which um, you have to uh, sort of surrender or sacrifice your ego. But in sacrificing your ego, you're going to activate the kingdom of God. 
God in your life and in the lives of all those that you love. And you will begin to watch things like anxiety and fear and defensiveness begin to melt away because you're now a carrier of the presence of God and the kingdom of heaven, and you are not in control. It's so good. It's like, okay, Lord, Something major's happened. We've had a car accident. The house caught fire. It, I've lost my job. Whatever it is, all of a sudden, instead of like this petrifying fear and it's all up to me, it's like, Father, what are you doing and how can I become a participant with you in what you're doing? Isn't that good? That's what sons and daughters do, by the way. Daddy's taking care of it and we just go, oh, okay, this is scary. I don't like it. I might be angry. I'm not saying deny any of that. I'm just saying get on the business of understanding what he's doing and become a companion and participant with him in holding your little guy while he's a big mess. You hear me? Okay. <clears throat> a couple of little thoughts on that before we keep reading. Uh, when you put yourself somewhere, you'll have to keep yourself there. When God puts you there, he will keep you there. Follow me? If you will rest into what God is doing in your life and let him give you what he wants to get you, let him promote you, let him take you. If you fight it for it and make it happen and you do it, guess who's going to have to keep you there? You. If you relax into it, sort of the white-knuckled version of life versus the open-handed, surrendered version of life, if God puts you somewhere, who's going to keep you there? God. It's beautiful beautiful uh, transition where we become stewards in what God is doing instead of in control of our own life and what we are doing. So if God provides something, he will sustain that something. When you force something, you will have to sustain it. All right, let's keep reading. And as I read through um, this next section, I'm going to try to point out uh, four what I would call divine hammers, but these, these um, sort of divine, um, and, and I mean a hammer both because you can use a hammer to break something, but you can also use a hammer on an anvil to forge and to shape um, metal. And it, it's interesting because one of the things I often do, it's just a kind of a habit or rhythm in my heart, but when I open the word, I actually go, Father, would you speak to me? Would you shape me? Would you form me? And would you fill me? So let's look at how... Peter answers his accusers. Verse 4. Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. I was in the city of Joppa praying. Now, you can imagine everybody's in an uproar. They're throwing tomatoes at him or whatever. They're angry. And all of a sudden, he starts talking, and everybody settles down to listen because they do really love him. Okay. So, I'm in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance, I saw a vision. God still does that, by the way. Not always, but God does those type of things. In a trance, I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into uh, it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, uh, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds. So first divine hammer that I would point out here is this is a divine vision. Did Peter control the vision? No, it was given to him by God, divine hammer. Because remember, Peter is somewhat at this point has been pride-filled, certainly highly racially prejudiced against all Gentiles, against Gentiles really, certainly against Romans. Remember he, when the Roman uh, came and, and was, or the, the servant really was uh, with um, the people who arrested Jesus, he pulled out his sword and what did he do? I mean, you know, Peter's like a, he's a formidable dude. 
Imagine if Beatty showed up this morning and said, I cut off somebody's ear yesterday. Okay, I mean, it's just it's wild. All right. <clears throat> okay, so first divine hammer uh, is the divine vision. So, okay, verse uh, 7. Then I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Second divine hammer is a, is a divine command. Verse 8. I replied, surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has entered my mouth. There's that pride. We talked about it a few weeks ago, so I'm not going to open it too much. Verse 9, the voice from heaven spoke a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. What's God referencing here? Really the Gentiles. He's opening the door. Um, If this didn't happen, if this chapter wasn't in Acts, if this didn't happen, then most of us are Gentiles in the room and none of us would be here. It would be this little Jewish movement and it would have stayed in Jerusalem. And what, if I know anything about churches and people and movement, when there's something happening and it seems good, what do we like to do? We, we usually kind of isolate and we insulate. And we don't want anybody else to come in and we kind of keep it to ourselves. So if God hadn't, if this chapter wasn't in, and if God hadn't so divinely given such clear instructions to Peter and to this church, then I don't think they would have changed. So uh, verse 7, uh, the divine command, then I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And he arrogantly replies, surely not, Lord, nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. Verse 9, the voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure. It's interesting. Anybody have a red letter Bible? A couple of you? So these words are in red, like the voice of Jesus speaking to Peter. Now, Peter actually rolled with Jesus. So when Jesus spoke, what would he have known? The voice of Jesus. I mean, he heard the literal, physical voice of Jesus when he was alive and after he was resurrected and when he ascended. So I, I just, I can't imagine. Um, it's like he, this is his friend. This is his comrade. This is the one he knew and walked with, and he hears the same voice. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Verse 10, this happened three times. How many times did Peter deny Jesus? I love the way God rolls. I don't know. And then it was pulled up into heaven again. Verse 11, right then three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was saying, the Spirit told me to have no hesitation. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, but without distinction, without prejudice is a better translation, about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. Now, uh, what I would say in all of this, even verse 13, is this is the divine preparation. So we have a divine vision. We have a divine command to Peter. We have divine preparation, verse 13. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter, and he will bring you a message through which you and all your family will be saved. So you have simultaneously, if you can, sort of this divine hammer sort of shaping. Um, You have a divine vision. You have a divine command to Peter, and then you have divine preparation going on with Cornelius and his whole household. And then verse 15, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as had he had come on us at the beginning. So what's he referencing there? As he had come on us at the beginning. Pentecost. So you could really argue that Acts 2 is like the Jewish Pentecost. Well, what's Acts 11? Gentile Pentecost. I mean, that is, it's when the church explodes open and all of a sudden it's every tongue and every nation. And that is true with all, from Genesis to Revelation. I could take you back through and show you, but the Jewish people just couldn't see it. Everything was too narrow. So all of a sudden, Peter is speaking to them. And I can imagine even as Peter's speaking, he's having doubts. Should I be telling them this? Is this right? What if the church leaves me when I get home? 
Okay, so go back to it. So while he is speaking, and can you believe the audacity of the Holy Spirit to interrupt his sermon? Man. He came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. So it probably means they spoke in tongues or languages, if you prefer. Verse 16, then I remembered what the Lord had said. Now, who's the Lord? Jesus. So he's quoting his Jesus. He's quoting the one that he walked with. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Verse 17. So just quickly, quick recap. We have a divine vision, a divine command, a divine preparation, then we have a divine action. God shows up and baptizes them. So, verse 17, if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? If we, if we went right from the Greek, which I'm not going to do it word for word, but I think it, it, a better translation in Greek is this. Is anyone able to forbid, refuse, or prevent what God is doing? Is anyone able to forbid, refuse, or prevent what God is doing? And if there's anything I would even pray for us as a little church and a microcosm of the body of Christ, is that God would so work in and through our little community expression that not one of us would be able to forbid, refuse, or prevent what God is doing. In fact, let us pause and pray for that right now. Lord Jesus, this is your church, and these are your people, and we are but passing through, and we are a small microcosm of the millions of people that are part of the body of Christ around the world. I loved Shannon's intro that you meet with house churches in Iran and in basements in China. Father, I pray that you would release on us um, such a move of your kingdom and your will and your way that not one of us would be able to forbid or refuse or prevent what you are doing in our midst. In Jesus' name. And I love that humility. I mean, I think Peter is like, it doesn't even matter if you all don't agree. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to follow. I love you. I respect you. But I am following my Jesus. And he is opening the door to the Gentiles. Verse 18. When they heard this, they had no further objections. And what did they do? They praised God. Notice, when their angry criticism ceases, what begins? Let me read it again. When they heard this, they had no further objections, and they praised God. So when their angry criticism ceases, what begins? Worship, praise, yeah. Saying, so then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Couple, I think, takeaways as we look across this, and then we'll tie it together. There is, for the first time, um, unity and diversity in this church. Uh, in a, we're going to see, even in Simon Peter, in a few chapters in a city called Antioch, that his same sin of discrimination and racial prejudice is going to rear its ugly head in Peter again. We could look at church history, and we could say it's reared its ugly head in the form of racism, nationalism, tribalism in a place like Africa, a caste system in a place like India, social and cultural snobbery even in places like America, even sexism. All of that type of discrimination in a Christian community, it, it is both offensive to human dignity, but it's also blasphemy before God because it, it, it is violating who and what God accepts, um, which is all who genuinely turn to him and repent. 
anyone who genuinely returns to the Lord Jesus, he will welcome into the family. So there's unity and diversity in the church that I see forming here. There's this idea of the gift of the Spirit. He gave it to the Jews in Acts 2. He gave it to the Gentiles in Acts 10. Peter talks about it in Acts 11. And he's also giving it to us today. Some of us experience the infilling power of the Spirit when we give our life to Jesus. Others of us experience it as a second work. Either way, it becomes the power inside of you by which you live this Christian life. The third thing I see here is a uh, sort of the status um, of non-Christians. So Cornelius is a what? Non-Christian. Yeah, he is not a Jesus person at this point. And there's nothing in, in Scripture that I can find anywhere that would say God will save everyone. That's true. But it does say God will save anyone who surrenders their life to him and believes authentically in the Lord Jesus. cross Romans John 3.16, if you'd like. So Christianity at this very moment is both highly inclusive. In other words, God will save anyone. But it's also exclusive in that God will um, only save those who surrender their life to him and call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, believing that the Christ Jesus rose from the dead and ascended back into heaven. And I think the last thing that I would see here is Dr. Luke has now outlined for us in a couple chapters previously how the apostle, uh, really Saul, who became the apostle Paul, um, and now Cornelius uh, came to faith. And if we looked at that, we'd say, you know, Saul was a Jew, Cornelius was a Gentile. Culturally, Saul was a scholar, Cornelius was a soldier. Uh, in religion, Saul was a bigot, Cornelius was a seeker, and yet both men are converted by the gracious initiative of a holy God. Both men receive forgiveness, um, both men receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, both men are baptized in water, both men are welcomed into the family of God on equal terms, and, and this fact becomes a testimony of the power and the impartiality of King Jesus as he comes to build his church. So suddenly the foundation is set so that every nation and every people and every tongue can come to faith in Christ. So if I tie this all together, if I look at the Apostle Peter as we unfold this entire chapter, I see these two defining moments, I think. I'd call moments or heart sets, a heart posture. Um, and it'd be number one, his surrender to God's sovereignty. Your will your way. And then number two would be his surrender to God's right to ownership. He has taken his place as a steward, not as an owner. He is not in control. It is not all resting on him. Uh, rather, he becomes a companion and participant with the Lord Jesus in the journey. Make sense? I think that's the call for all of us. And if I could invite us into anything it would be that we would begin to see ourselves as companions, participants, and stewards of the kingdom of God everywhere we go, no matter what's happening. Dwayne and Nicole, would y'all come back up? I did it. Do I need to move that? Probably so. Let's do this. Um, as they set up here, would our prayer team just go maybe up here and up here and let's just hang out uh, a minute. We're going to close in a song. I'd love to invite you to stand with me. Look at our prayer team rolling up there. Come on. Here's what I would love for you to do. 
as we sing this song and in the quietness of your own heart, I would love for you to make a step. It can be anything. Um, I like to demonstrate external things that would reflect what's going on inside my heart. Does that make sense? I'll step back up here. So sometimes I do something like this. Why? I'm surrendering before my king, my Lord. You guys can start playing whenever you're ready back there, going. Sometimes I'm going to close my eyes. Why? To focus on king of kings. Sometimes I'm going to open my hand. But take a step. If you need special prayer, come forward. If you want to give your life to Jesus, do that. But let's ask the Lord Jesus to infuse us with his kingdom will and way. And let's also bow our knee before him and go, God, you are sovereign, number one. And you have a right to own our life and our things. And we are here as companions and participants with you in the journey. Yeah? Let's worship. I'm giving you my heart. All that is within, lay it all down for the sake of you, my King, giving you my dreams, laying down my rights, giving up my pride for the promise of.
Father, I suspect that there's some people in the room who need the freedom to know that they are not responsible for what's happening with their kids. Father, I believe there's probably some people in the room who need to know they're not responsible for their spouse. They're not responsible for the faith of their spouse. There's probably some people in the room that need to know that they're not responsible for the health of their own body or the health of the bodies of their family members. And Father, I pray that as you speak to hearts and minds, that you would allow us as your kids, as your sons and daughters, as saints saved by grace, to take up our place with you as the one who's in control. And our job is to pray, is to trust, is to walk, is to be in our own Jesus journey, not to be responsible for every other person. So Father, I'm going to renew my commitment and even ask as we pray together that church, you would renew yours to let go of the white knuckled life and to open our hands and surrender and say, Lord Jesus, you are the one and I trust you even when things are scary, even when things are difficult. And Father, I pray that you would cultivate deep and intimate abiding relationships with every person in the room, with you. Father, if there are those in the room who don't know you, I pray that you would draw them into a saving grace and surrender. Father, thank you for Rolling Grace Middle School. Thank you for the messy journey of church and life. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would infuse your kingdom, will, and way on our lives and that we would sense your gracious hand. We would hear your voice. We'd sense your face shining upon us as we journey. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast of Saltbox Church. If this content was helpful to you, please like it, rate it, review it, and share it on social media as that is helpful to us. We believe when a person grows in their own Jesus journey, everyone around them benefits and gets better.